Welcome to Directly Correct, a PeopleX podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Jay Denton. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a um, blacksmith class where you go and like you, uh, uh, I guess, like forge some steel. And in this case, like, see, it's that's gonna... it's like go in like a furnace and get the yeah. metal and heat it up till it's on like fire, and then you hit it with something. It, supposedly, I don't know why I'd be trusted with such a thing, you know. But uh, essentially, you're going to take. I'm going to take a a horseshoe, heat it up, and somehow like manipulate this into a knife. So at the end of the day, you walk out with a horseshoe knife, which sounds pretty cool. It sounds amazing. Is it a dulled knife or is it like a <laughs> knife knife? I think it would be pretty pretty lame if like you walk out with like a butter knife, right? Yeah, or like a kid's knife where it like looks like a knife, but it's like like you know not sharp. I mean, but uh, I, I think I am, you're, you're testing my skills, right? So if it comes out dull, I think that's on me and uh, there's a high likelihood as well. Well, you always talk about like nerdy stuff like the Star Trek. My nerdy stuff is like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And so I feel like you could see if you're part elf, because don't the elves <laughs> make all like the swords and shit in Lord of the Rings? I don't think that we've ever talked about this. I did not know that you're a fantasy guy. Well, I'm not. I, I think I'm more into like the epic story. I like the epic story. Uh, like, the so long like, arc. Like Harry, I like Harry Potter. I like Lord of the Rings. I like the Matrix. Like the epic story, you know? <clears throat> oh, man. Like, so maybe this is like uh, a dichotomy between us because like what I enjoy about Star Trek is every week you go to a new planet. It's a totally new story. You know, there's some sort of like character arcs across the entire series, but every week is a new adventure, and it, it doesn't really relate to what happened last week. See, and that's, that's the difference between us, because you also like Doctor Who, which isn't it that basically the same thing? Yeah, largely. Yeah, and I, given I've never really watched either of them, but they're never, like, had an appeal to me, and I think that's probably why. <laughs> quite possibly like i don't really like him uh binge watching things either so it's like some people like will rip through an entire 12 episodes of something on the fly right like what's up jay what's up jay man himself he's here he's trying to come in hey guys how's it going dude good that sound okay you sound great you sound great so are you are you more of a uh, star trek guy or more of a lord of the ring guy (laughs) uh i don't know neither necessarily why is that (laughs) star wars probably star wars my my oh yes my 13 year old this past week has gone through listening or watching in order i think from the beginning and then all the new ones that kind of work in between uh so i I think he gets that for me disney's released so much new star wars i can't keep track like you got Obi-Wan Kenobi and Andor, which I hear is just absolutely amazing. And of course, the Mandalorian, which when they when they bought the Star Trek contract, pardon me, Star Wars contract, I thought, well, fantastic. You get more Star Wars, but I can't keep up. Yeah, same way. I started watching Mandalorian when it first came out. And then just with all the I mean, they're just I've heard you guys talk about it here on the podcast. Too many great TV shows going on right now for anyone to keep up with. Um, yeah. The latest, the latest one. Are you guys familiar with Kaleidoscope? No, I haven't heard of it. No. Uh, okay, so it's a. Uh, I'm about to start it. I think tonight. It's a. 
it's a, a heist, your typical heist type show. This is all how it's been described to me. What's really cool about it that my coworkers told me about, you can watch it in various orders. So you don't have to start episode one and kind of go through. I was told about this one where you start, and I'm going to make this up. You start on like episode eight and then go back to one and jump to four and two. And, and it tells a story in a different way. And so anyway, it, it, it's a pretty... It just shows you how far along TV and all of that is coming along that it's tricked up so much you can watch it in whatever order and it, you know, it's just a, it, 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 we're in a different realm of uh, entertainment. Um, Black Mirror Bandersnatch, do you remember that? Yeah. It's like that where you could like choose your own adventure with the. It wasn't actually that good, but it was like compared to other Black Mirrors, but it was, it was interesting and novel. That was interesting, and usually when someone says that, hey, like here's a new show to watch, like I'm like, yeah, I'm never gonna get to that. But I mean, this sounds really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that that's probably next up on my list. Uh, yeah. Maybe, well, maybe we should tell the audience who you are, Jay. Uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. But uh, you, so you're the chief analytics officer for Labor IQ or ThinkWire. I can't remember. I always get the two names confused for the organization. But your expertise in analyzing and distilling complex data into actionable insights. Uh, for supplying HR and recruiting teams. And you've been featured on Bloomberg Business, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, Business Insider, a lot of major publications. And like you mentioned earlier, got that background at Texas Tech, uh, Management Information Systems and General Business. Um, I've been really excited just because we have had such a tumultuous time in the world going on right now. And I wanted to bring in someone who could kind of potentially make sense of all of that. So I don't know, do you want to talk at all about what's going on in the economy and how that is impacting things like jobs, wages, layoffs, and the like? Yeah, sure. I think when you get an introduction like that and the word tumultuous, tumultuous is, is uh, in the same sentence with your name, that's a little scary, but <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so if we, gosh, it's, it's hard to talk about this year without you know a quick reflection on the last two, because that's really setting yeah. us up for what is either happening currently, which if you, you know, if you turn on the TV, look at any sort of publication, you see layoffs, you know, you, you're on LinkedIn, you look at the top right, you're, you're seeing a lot of news a, about that. And so overall, I think if we, if we rewound and we look back at the last two years, pandemic happened, tons of jobs lost, but then we were on a pace of recovery like we've never seen. You know, we, we, we lost more jobs in the last, I don't know, three or four recessions combined, but added all of them back faster than any of them. And so because of that, it, you know, businesses were very aggressive in hiring. So you saw a lot of hires happen at the very, I would say, upper end of the salary bell curve uh, with some companies getting pretty aggressive. Um, and then, you know, overall, just, you know, that's not sustainable. The pace at which we've been adding jobs isn't sustainable. At some point, normalization is going to occur. And I think that's, that's where we are. So if I'm, you know, generally people looking at it this year expect a slowdown. I think normalizing though is really what we're getting back to. It just might be tougher in some industries or some types of jobs or some patients. Why did we see this big bounce back in jobs? Yeah, why? <laughs> well, there was still a lot of demand. You know, if you, if you, if you take like, let's say when the pandemic happened right away, um, take a dentist office. They literally had to shut down. Like you couldn't open the doors. There were a lot of right. jobs that were, you had to be face to face. Those those kind of went away. When that happened, then there were some businesses that looked at the new environment. See, like grocery stores. We couldn't go to grocery stores at the time the way we did before. So Amazon, as an example, took off even more, right? 
uh, people started getting more and more things delivered to their homes, maybe straight from the grocery store, not just not just Amazon or, or others like it. And so grocery stores were some of the first to bounce back because they figured out a way people, you know, they're not going to restaurants, they still need food. And so they added a lot of home delivery services. So you had, you had different types of jobs come back, at least initially. Um, anyone who didn't have a digital footprint of their business had to figure out how do I get online and sell through online, through apps, all of that. And so that created this other newer set of kind of demand that led to a lot of jobs recaptured right away. And then as the pandemic, you know, kind of as we started getting back to normal, um, you know, we, we're starting to see the normal type of jobs come back and we'll just slow down from it. Well, I've had this kind of general thesis, and I know I've bounced it off you, but I kind of refined it a little bit, Jay, that if the pandemic helped your business, it's probably hurting you now. And if the pandemic hurt your business, it's probably helping you now. Is that fair? Does like the data pan that out from from like a you know labor or an economics perspective? I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. So you know the the last couple of years there are a few different terms. The Great Resignations one. One of them is the Great Reshuffle, and it's from people shuffling from one type of job or industry to another because of how demand changed. Now as things moderate back, yeah, to your to your point, we're starting to see some of those really pandemic specific demand that was created. Some of those jobs now being pulled back. Um, another term that a lot of listeners are probably used to are first in, first out. The first jobs to recover that, for whatever reason, those jobs that recovered fastest, stronger, all of that are now some of the ones that we see going. I, I love this aspect that uh, people are resilient and can use this. You know, we all want to like relax and enjoy the crisis, as it were, but we can also use it to create jobs and innovate and find new ways to uh, work. Etc. Like, now are we back to normal, or like, is there more coming? Like, now we're seeing like well, hyperinflation and you know all this sort of stuff. Are, is it going to be business normal, or are we in for something else? I would say I feel like, or I, I hope that after we're, you know we're we're kind of at this inflection point where we are starting to see certain businesses. So, as an example, uh, some of the first ones back were tech jobs. That's what you tend to see right now. Some of the layoffs. Um, finance, uh, because of low interest rates and so on, those jobs have really been disrupted. A lot of that has to do with interest rates going up. So as things start to moderate, interest rates come back down as, uh, you know, the, we just got, we've, we've gotten two pretty good numbers or better numbers in terms of inflation starting to ease. So it's really once inflation starts to get under control, um, right now businesses, you know, the general sentiment or things are going to slow down and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So things are going to slow down. I think we'll get to a point of sort of stabilization, maybe later part of this year. And I think 2024 will look much more like pre-pandemic and true normalization compared to what we've been this roller coaster the last few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what? Tell me this. Like, with times the way they are, and I know you're kind of in the talent intelligence, labor IQ space. What What is the role of that type of data during economic times like they are right now? Yeah, it's interesting. You, you know, Cole, we're, we're definitely seeing a shift where the last couple of years, it's how do I keep up with the market? You know, when pay was just going through the roof and companies just, they couldn't figure out how to land that candidate. And oftentimes because they weren't in the right spot compensation wise, or they were losing people right and left because of that. As we start to get into this year, like we, we talk to some businesses and they, and they say, well, we're not hiring. And we go, yeah, you are. You're not hiring for brand new jobs. You're backfilling a lot of roles. So it's, it, you know, when, when companies this year are going to really be focused on getting expenses under control, 
what's the biggest expense most companies have? It's typically headcount, typically payroll. And so when, you know, there's still going to be a lot of people quit their jobs, there are going to be terminations that happen. We're still expecting around 64 million hires in the U.S. this year. That's a lot of people moving between jobs, 64 million hires. Now this year is like- Isn't 76. that like half of the workforce? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot, there's a, so, you know, when, when turnover is roughly 35-ish percent or something like that, and then you layer on people that just exit the market because they retire, you got, you know, new people coming out of college and so on. Um, that's how many uh, will end up getting hired this year. So the question is, wow. when, I don't know, have you guys looked at any of that? So I'll, I'll, here, here's what I'll, I'll angle it back to. Have you looked at any of the pay transparency states and some of now they have to post, you know, what the salary is for certain jobs? Have you seen any of those numbers? No, yes. No. So there will be like one job that will say the pay is somewhere between 50 grand and 150 grand. Or I mean, well, some I of them like are... <laughs> Netflix the other day posted a role and it was like, like 60,000 to 600,000 was the pay range. Oh, I saw one ridiculous. that I saw there was an article that it, that, that referenced one uh, kind of big financial institution firm. It was between zero dollars and two million was referenced. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so, but but generally speaking, there <laughs> is going to be, and I'm sure we'll 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 come back to this topic, but there's a range of pay for a specific job based on um, who the candidate is, not just the job itself, but what do they bring to the table? And that's what as businesses continue to right size expenses this year, the person that leaves, so there will still be a lot of turnover. The person that leaves, whoever you replace them with, it's never the same exact person. They're coming in with a different skill set, different experience. And so let's imagine you had a, a really a high-powered VP, tons of experience, been there, done that multiple places. They're going to command a certain salary. If you replace them with somebody who's, who's in a different spot in their career, how do you right-size and make sure in a, in, a, in a market where keeping expenses under control is going to be critical, how do you know to offer the right salary for that person? I don't know if I can like make a, a cogent point here, but I, I will attempt to do it. So is there a case that could be made that for a lot of positions, uh, you don't need a high performer because a high performer is going to cost a whole lot of money. A lot of positions may just needs an average performer and therefore you can control your costs, keep a uh, specific price point mm -hmm. in mind that, you know, like we're, we're constantly told that uh, you need to get ahead, perform more, perform better. But is there, roles that you don't necessarily need someone to be a super high. Oh, that Scott, that's hard for me to say you don't need a higher. It's just, that's not my wiring. So it's kind of hard right. to, you know, um, you know, in, in our company, we, we go away from using the word culture and more mindset. Like, do you have the mindset of a top performer, high performer, because in certain environments you can't get away with that. So really I think overall, it just comes to right sizing expectations. Do you need somebody who can do a hundred of whatever that, you know, whatever that process is, whether it's number of sales or widgets you make or whatever it is, or this year, do you really only need somebody who can make 50 and what's that, what does that cost? Um, even looking within your organization and saying, I think to your point, maybe if I take high performer out more of experience level or, you know, do you need a VP or will a manager or director, can they provide what you, what you need in that sort of role for this year? Yeah, that, that's totally fair. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, um, take a company like McDonald's. So you have all these like frontline employees and uh, there's a range of uh, ability. So like cooking fries, you know, there, there, there's someone that's terrible and there's someone at the very top end. They may be 20 times better. Uh, and say just for uh, easy math, 
the, it's $5 an hour. Is that person at the very top end worth $100 an hour to the company? Yeah, so you're, I, think, you're... I think this gets into, um, you know, Mark Huslid and a few of those other authors. I think they wrote like a whole series like, called like the HR scorecard, the workforce scorecard. They always talk about like A, B, and C roles where like A roles are like critical to business strategy execution where you have to have a high performer. Whereas a B role is I think more what you're talking about, Scott, which is like average performance would do because it's not really critical to strategy execution and you don't want to overpay for that talent in those type of roles. And I can't really remember about C roles, but I imagine that's like janitors or something. I don't know. I, I love that. Cause you, you think about like uh, a Guinness and O'Boyle star performers, like the people that at the very top end produce just exponentially more value for the company and therefore they should be rewarded. But if you act, factor in this other aspects that you're referring to Cole, you can rather segment those populations. Absolutely. I don't know. I think I cut you off there, Jay. My apologies. No, no, I was, I was actually going down, I think, a route similar to you. It, you know, what, what's the job to be done and what compensation makes sense for that job to be done? Somebody can be an absolute superstar. Uh, I mean, you, you know, before this really began, we're talking about NFL players. You want to play an NFL player's salary, even though they have an ability to make millions of dollars for the job you just described. No, it wouldn't make sense. So what is the right compensation for that role? And, and I think that's what it gets back to. Is, well, is you guys what, are kind of compensation experts, right? In terms of the analytics on what's going on with compensations. Um, I, I'm wondering, how does that factor into kind of like Scott's thesis? You know, like, does compensation, like, are, should a star performer be paid like 100x if they are 100x better than everybody else? Or I don't know, how does that factor in? Well, it really gets down to, uh, there are, gosh, there's so many factors that, that play a role in that, <laughs> right? But it gets back to really over what is the what is the supply and demand for that role? What does it look like? So how many people, how hard is it for somebody to figure out how to do that role that helps create the worth of the job itself? So if it's something, um, an airline pilot is an example, you can't just roll out of bed and go be an airline pilot. So when we look at, so what we do is help figure out what, what are airline pilots? Uh, I mean, that's not really where we focus, but take, take your typical VP of marketing. Um, what does it take? What skill sets do you really need to do that? So we figure out what that price is. But then you take today's labor market and to actually land a new employee. That's where, really where we focus is to figure out what offer to retain or attract new talent. Where do you really need to offer today's amount? That, that's our focus. I don't know. That's sounding eerily similar. And I may have walked you into this a little bit to this concept that I'm calling everyone gets paid the same. You want, you want to talk about this, Jay? I know I, I sent it over to you. I think I even cited you in the article, but I wrote an article called Everyone Gets Paid the Same. It's a theory. I know you already have one correction, which a few people noted, which is it's a hypothesis, not a theory, but, well, well, you know, tomato, tomato. Tell, tell us about the article, Cole. What, what's the general thesis of it? So the basic thesis is um, not literally that everyone gets paid the same because that's all ultimately very falsifiable in like two seconds, but that... Your pay is kind of correlated. I called it miscellaneous heartache, which a lot of people took issue with this. But if you kind of uh, took all of the factors of a job and how, like, let's call it difficulty, since people don't like miscellaneous heartache, the difficulty of all those factors combined is directly proportional to your pay. Um, and there was something in the article for everyone to hate, 
but I actually really believe it. I think that, you know, and I, I put like a little kind of um, vignette in there about a, a, a hypothetical worker who wants to get a raise from $50,000 to $60,000 a year. And they're thinking their job is going to stay the same, but their pay goes up. When in reality, they have to work more hours, their job gets harder, they have to make more decisions, they need more skills. And what it ends up looking like is like, wow, I got a $10,000 raise, but my life is $10,000 harder. Was this really worth it? Does everyone get paid the same? I'm, I'm super curious what Jay has to say about this. This is not my domain. Yeah, I... Uh... Yeah, well, plenty of landmines you left in that article for me to <laughs> navigate around. So I, I appreciate you you bringing me into that conversation. Uh, generally speaking, like if, if you took it at the highest level, you can poke holes in it all, all the way around. But at the very highest level, there is a correlation in the experience and training needed. And sometimes you can say educational component of that, that as well. It may mean degree, it may not. But uh, you, you had a scatter plot that I told you that you said you totally made up, but there, it, there's actually reality to it. So for people who really want to dig into it, there's um, uh, if, you, if you go to ONET, which has a lot of occupational information. So if you have this job, typically what responsibilities, what's the pay, you know, which markets tend to have that, that sort of thing. So ONETonline.org, I think is what it is. They have something called a job zone that they attach to all the different occupations in the country. And it helps. It's basically a scale of one to five of is this something like you could roll out of bed and do with no training required? If you plot jobs that don't require really any training and you can just show up and do the job, they tend to have much lower pay. If you have a job like uh, I mentioned airline pilot or somebody uh, that's giving you anesthesia at, at the hospital or like even a, even a grad assistant, a grad assistant, you can't just be that. It takes time to get there. So those on a relative scale are harder, take longer to, to, to get to that job, and you tend to see pay go up for those roles. Now, they're not going to be equal, like exactly for a lot of different reasons. You'll see variances by certain industries pay more, the size of company, the profitability of the company, um, variable comp structures. Anybody who's gone for an interview, you went to these various roles with the same set of skills and you were offered a variety of, of salaries, right? And so you know that technically it's not exactly right, but on a broad scale, there's a lot of, I think, uh, truth told to the to, to things that were in your arm. I, I, I hate to break it to you, Cole, but like you're probably like <laughs> 20 years too late. Cause I mean, like Notorious B.I.G. said it is like mo money, mo problems, right? He also got a citation in the article too. So <laughs> I try to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> Yeah, I would say over time, these things normalize, you know, so, but, but I know, I know personally, I know of CEOs, I know, uh, I talked to one recently that makes under $100,000 a year, I know some that make more than a million, right? So, so the ranges can definitely vary based on a variety of factors. But I would generally say that uh, the harder the job, which often harder can mean um, more responsibility, like once you're in charge of people and the types of conversations, when you're a people manager, you have to have. There's a lot to that that most people don't want to do. They don't have to have those conversations. So to have those conversations, you get compensated more. When you have to make big strategic business decisions, that's another. Um, I'll tell you guys about, I, I was part of a, I got to attend a presentation once of this topic I thought was fascinating. Uh, it was a guy named Tom Foster. And the, the, the topic, it was called time span. 
and he asked he asked the he asked the the room of uh, something and it's been several years ago now so I'll, I'll tell it the best I can but he said imagine you have this this person factory worker and they get paid a certain amount and then they look and they see the manager and they know the manager makes more the owner makes more well why and a lot of it has to do with compensation over time and differences in roles have to do with how far in the future you can work without being told what to do. So a lot of people, oh, interesting. a lot of people only have to think about what do I do today? And literally their job is just thinking about right now, if I just do this each day, I don't have to plan Just come and do my thing. A manager might have to think a month or three months out. A, a VP might be thinking a year out. And so because of that, how far in the future you can think that's often the way compensation ends up working and why as you go kind of up the chain of management, why people end up making money. Yeah, and I, in the article, I even called that decision-making rights, autonomy, and risk of failure, which is essentially kind of what you're saying Tom Foster was, I think it's Tom Foster was the guy. Right. It's like, how much risk of failure do you have based on your decision? But I'm just, I'm just tickled that you actually think the theory is correct. And I'm just going to quote you on that jay no caveat yeah i do want to make one one quick caveat though is uh, to your point earlier about like the ceos like one gets paid a hundred thousand dollars another one gets paid a hundred million um there is one big caveat which is the theory says it excludes any kind of getting paid via ownership or equity or stock that those folks do not get paid the same because there are non-linear gains when you have that type of pay so I, i think that's one important point to bring up here I think you're absolutely right. And also, like, when you're talking about uh, difference in pay of CEOs, you also have a different scale of organization. So if you're the leader of a GM, that's far different than being, like, a little mom-and-pop sort of company. So, yep. I mean, yeah, you, talk about, you talk about the difference in conversations that you got to have, complexity, et cetera. Yeah, a lot of that it gets back to where the company is in its life cycle. So. When you're more infancy phase, you don't have a lot of funding, you haven't made any sales, what you're able to compensate people with is often different than once you become profitable and you're a market leader and all like totally. those are those are other things that, that relate back to the individual business and what the business is able to offer. But if you aggregate all the businesses, it does tend to even out over time. Yeah. Let's do some rapid fire. What 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 questions do we have for rapid fire today, Scott? Rapid fire. So Jay. A little birdie told me that you are a barbecue snob. Is this right? Uh, I don't know if snob is good. I think just uh, <laughs> I, I'll take any barbecue I can get wherever I can get it. Usually. Oh, where the where the term proudly? I do. I'm a barbecue snob. What about you, Cole? I love barbecue. Now I will say this: um, as a person who came from Louisiana, who is newer to the Texas barbecue scene, <laughs> the over infatuation. So I'm a big rib guy. I love ribs. But the brisket thing here, like people, like I love brisket, but I don't love it as much as Texans love brisket. So that's the thing that kind of throws me off. Yeah. Brisket's so I'll say I moved to North Carolina for a couple of years. I've lived in Texas my entire life other than that. And I went to make my own. I mean, when you're from Texas, I figure it, it's part of you have to learn how to make barbecue. It's just what you do. And so I'm in North Carolina going to shop for a brisket and I couldn't even find it in the store anywhere. You had like special order. And I and like it. They're, it's everywhere in Texas. It was such a, yeah. They're more uh, pulled pork over there, right? Yeah, pulled pork, and then depending the on where you are. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Jay, let's get into it. Okay, what is your order? What are you ordering? 
Oh, in terms of barbecue, if I show yeah. up? Yeah, you get to the uh, counter. So if they have like like bacon wrap, brisket, stuffed jalapenos, that's one of my, you know, if they've got something <laughs> like that on there. Uh, the chopped beef, that way I don't have to do the work and it's a little a little bit more moist. And then I, some places, it, I, I think where I'm a snob is when it comes to potato salad. Generally, I don't like it. But there are certain places that I've I've actually enjoyed it. So to me, it's the the, the meat part's always easy. It's like what side? Some of them have mac and cheese. That's great. Oh, yeah. that, 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 that's kind of that, that's my go-to. Uh, are you a sauce guy? I, I am. I need it to be a little not the thicker sauce. Something that's a the, the little bit. I don't know the the thinner sauce. I don't know what word you use for it. But yeah. Oh yeah. Black Black's Barbecue in downtown Dallas. Sauce and brisket, by the way, but. Uh, are, are you a neat eater? Like just eat with your hands. <laughs> uh, these, these are interesting five questions. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'll tell you, we, there, there is one place that when you go, you know, they only put it on like on, on paper, like on butcher paper. Like there are a few Yeah, of that's what I was going to ask. Do you like the butcher paper or do you like it in like a styrofoam container? No, I'm, I'm, I'm totally cool with whatever. Uh, it's more of the, the company that I have with me. Like I took my wife to one of those places once and she thought she was going somewhere really nice. And because it was a, that, you know, they were known for having good barbecue and then it just kind of thrown down on this piece of butcher paper. And, and, and my wife and my mom are kind of looking at me like, what do I do? And I'm like, Hey, it's good. It doesn't matter. You know? Uh, what's your drink of choice? What, what are you, what are you getting uh, to go with the barbecue? I'm a simple guy. I probably would do water or a, or a nice cold beer. What about you, Cole? I don't know. This. I was thinking iced tea all the way, man. Iced tea. Good that's iced so... tea. What, 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 Scott, what about you? You haven't talked at all about what, what's your barbecue taste? Oh, I'm brisket guy. I'm from Texas. Brisket guy. Got to do yeah. it. Uh, pork ribs are great. Cadillac barbecue in Dallas. Fantastic. If you're talking brisket, you're talking law barbecue or Franklin's probably. Never been to Snows in Lexington, but uh, wait to go there someday. And I guess this brings me to the final question. What's the best barbecue in Texas? You know, you just mentioned Cadillac. I mean, there's so many. I used to office right beside there. And the worst mistake I ever made was I had lunch before I made a long drive that was like five hours away to love it. <laughs> don't ever do that. You know, don't, don't go load up on barbecue and then get on the road. Uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the ones uh, I, I really like it you know, great flavor. There's one actually cold doesn't live too far from my house. There's one between us. It's a literally just a shack called blues barbecue. I enjoy it. Um, what's the guys, what's the one down in Austin? Why am I drawing a blank on the name that I wouldn't necessarily say it was the best, but it's kind of an experience. The one, uh, where they have the open pit. Probably Frank. There's so many in Austin. Not, but... Yeah. Not, not, not Franklin's. They have it. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on it. They have like a, a one in the airport now, but. Oh, uh, uh, Salt Lake. Yeah. Salt Lake. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone, you know, that those listening that are not from here, you'll see it on the, the food travel shows, but it, it's quite an experience that, that you can go out and actually walk up to the pit where all the barbecue is just laying out there for you. And Blues Barbecue, I want to give them another shout out. Very good. Very good. <laughs> well, do you want to go to the nerdery, Scott? Uh, I think we should, right? I, I know, Jay, you, you love the nerdery, right? Uh, Guys, sometimes I'll just skip forward to the nerdery. I mean, I love your guests and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, the nerdery is where we have all the tangential topics, and we kind of just kind of go ham. Uh, but our first article is, hold up real quick, it's called Pay for Performance and Employee Mental Health. 
So we're all uh, meritocracy guys, right? We, we believe in meritocracy. Uh, and pay performance schemes are a way to motivate and attract talent. We, we've known for a long time that high performers tend to like these pay performance schemes. But the study is finding that uh, these schemes are also related to mental illness, uh, increased usage of anxiety and antidepressants, uh, essentially a 5% increase in certain folks. And they're, they're saying that uh, these usages also relate to uh, missing more work and lower pay overall for certain populations, namely older workers and women, and ultimately turnover. And also, uh, people with mental health issues are more likely to leave organizations when these sort of things are implemented. So even though, like, the scheme would think, you would think that, like, oh, people are going to be better off because they're going to be able to earn more money based on their time and effort. Now we're actually seeing that it actually adversely affects certain folks. Now, how, how did they define paper performance, just out of curiosity? Was it, like, just generalized paper performance or, like, you're working at a supermarket and you get an extra nickel for every, you know, bag yeah. of rice you sell. Yeah, I think I think you're hitting on like a criterion problem that we need to face if we're going to implement these sort of things, right? Like you, you can't really differentiate that or like be over someone company. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really read the book article. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys uh not to give away show secrets, but but you guys sent me a couple of these to review beforehand and I pulled it up and scrolled down. I was like, oh gosh, I got to read all of this. But I think most of it was covered in the first, like the concept was in the first couple of paragraphs. I, you know, where I've seen it in my career, just thinking of where people aren't able to hit the mark and it adds stress. You know, it's when, when, when you're not wired for the role, you're often going to be considered a low performer because it's just not the thing where you have passion expertise, the skill set, like um, sales is a really easy one you can look at. Most people are not wired to be a salesperson or a high volume salesperson. And so if you put somebody who's uh, quiet, doesn't like the, doesn't like people, you know, like all of that, and you put them in a sales role, they're probably going to be a, a low performer and it's going to add more stress. So that's kind of where I thought where oftentimes um, either business leaders or folks get it wrong, where you're not matching up someone's skill set and their passion to what the role actually is. I love that, Jay. And I was kind of thinking just to go back to the everyone gets paid the same. That reminds me of like the job fit and even like the values alignment. Like if you've ever been in a job where you had to do something or you were being incentivized to do something, you're like, I really hate this. It's going to be like literally it's going to be physically you know, and mentally taxing on you, which is going to create problems probably for your health. But if you don't have if you have that alignment, it probably won't feel that way. And I think that's probably the issue is a lot of times paper performance is put into place for jobs where people probably wouldn't want to do that anyway. <laughs> like they, they, this is the only way we're going to motivate people to do this thing is because it doesn't really align to the median individual. I, I love that take too. Like you're trying to align people's skills with what they're actually doing. And it, it seems like it's almost like a weed out mechanism as well. Like you're finding these people that, uh, we're not a natural fit overall, everything that Cole just mentioned there. Uh, but is, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? Like, I mean, if you get like a bunch from of what, people... what perspective? It, it could create a... Okay, imagine you got a bunch of, like, super go-getters into one room. You, you weed out the people that uh, were perhaps... go. Okay, we'll, we'll go to a sales perspective. 
you you take all the people that are just kind of like perhaps slightly introverted team players, this sort of thing, and you add in just all the go-getters, smooth-talking people, all this sort of stuff. You get rid of all the team players. Is this a toxic culture now? Do we have a bunch of people that can't co-mingle and operate in a team environment? I, I remember yeah. seeing a study a few years ago. I, I'll try to dig it up. It talked about like top stock traders on Wall Street and when you move them from one firm to another, that they very quickly were not the top members of their new firm. And it's because they didn't have the supporting cast around yep. them that like they were set up to succeed at their previous firm. And it was actually the supporting cast that made them great, not just their own inherent skills. And if you kind of call all those people by either, you know, getting rid of them at that, that employer or moving them into a new role, you know, that bump goes away. I, I think you see the same thing in sports. Like football is probably the best example, especially on defense, where like you can have the best overall athletes, but you really need that inner group communication. And essentially a defense is made up of like six different teams. So you got the linemen, you got the linebackers that talk to each other, the defensive backs, left and right side, et cetera. And if you lose this sort of team dynamic, even though everyone's a great athlete, you kind of lose everything. I used, I used to work with this guy in Waco that was a Chicago Cub. And essentially he said that everyone, every major league team has essentially equal roster as far as talent-wise. But it's really the group dynamics that make a champion. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Even Other the than... <laughs> <laughs> uh, It ain't over till it's over. As you yeah. Well, I, I know we had like another article that we wanted to talk about that – and I think this is kind of in the vein of all the quiet quitting stuff that's going on. It's from the Wall Street Journal calls, your coworkers are less ambitious and how bosses are adjusting to the new order. And, you know, it's saying for a growing number of professionals, they're not willing to work through the weekend. They're not willing to work into the evenings anymore. They're saying, you know what, I'm just going to come in again, kind of to that quiet quitting point. I'm just going to come in, do the very bare minimum of my job and and you know and you know suck it <laughs> otherwise yeah. and how, how are managers dealing with this type of situation i would say actually from the viewpoint of what we were discussing earlier jay perhaps some of those people are getting laid off <laughs> because of the macroeconomic conditions but how 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 is this occurring in the in the workplace right now and like is this a permanent trend or is this just a pandemic hangover well i think part you know that is that has made the situation what it is does have to do over the last two years and how much how many jobs have gone remote and what that can be taken in multiple ways the, the main way that i'm going at right now is the competition for talent has changed tremendously over the last couple of years because of that more of the advent or the uh people using remote work for, for hiring so when all of a sudden the competition for talent goes up because you know we're here in dallas we've had people hired away from our organization for companies in San Francisco and they're hiring remotely in Dallas. So when competition goes up, then you have to start assessing like, okay, where can we win? What is it that makes this job more attractive than others? And, you know, with, with, with burnout as real as it's been over the last couple of years, I think companies that have been able to keep that more under control, um, I, I think it's played a factor where, where people haven't had to work around the clock in certain certain situations, they now know their friend has that. So they want that too. And 
I just think that whole thing around remote work, which by the way, is also caused extra stress where it feels like you're having to work around the clock because you've always got to be plugged into Zoom or Teams or whatever. So from both angles, I think that's really played a major role over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, in this article has a statistic, essentially 36% of workers feel like they're less career ambitious than they were prior to the pandemic. And it, it largely sounds like depression to me, like wide-scale depression, which uh, I, I've talked about it on here before. It's like, I, I, I believe that a large part of this is due to remote working, remote meetings, not really interacting with folks and essentially being lonely. And you talk about like bringing someone into a company. Now you got to onboard them remotely. They don't really know each other. Uh, yeah. This sort of thing. So like loneliness is the leading indicator and ambition is the lagging indicator. It know? is. It is. Um, it's also generational. It, it, it points that out in the article and it goes back to the difference between, say, the baby boomer generation and then all the younger generations since then. Uh, you know, I've reminded coworkers, bosses, and so on, colleagues over the years that I grew up in an age where, you know, it, it, I was a teenager when America Online, chat, all that. So I gained during that part of my life, an early part of my life, around I can know and talk and trust someone that I never actually see. They're on the other side of the planet, other side of the world. They don't have to be face to face with me. We can, you know, all of that. And obviously the technology has expanded much since then. And so the whole, you know, the, the younger generations just continue to challenge what the status quo has been, whether it's a nine to five job, whether it's you have to be in the office, um, all, all of that. And I think that that's a trend that obviously will continue. Yeah, we're seeing this like decline in like what people call like hustle culture, right? Uh, to your point, like uh, across generational lines, not just like, you know, people kind of bash on Gen Z or millennials for being lazy, this sort of thing. But it, it's not just isolated to these groups. It's across the board as people like reevaluated what they want out of life and this sort of thing. But to our conversation earlier, we're past the pandemic and organizations are going to start being becoming more directive, I believe. I believe this is Scott's prediction. What, what happens? What happens when all these people are still less ambitious or just want to kind of mail it in or, you know, this well, sort of can thing. I, can I tie this back into something we were talking about earlier in the podcast where Jay, you mentioned something like 60 or 70 million people are going to switch jobs in the next year. And I even encountered an article the other day that said um, we were having such high levels of turnover that it's affecting the overall economy's productivity. Right. Because so many people are new at their jobs and aren't good yet that it's actually putting a damper on the economy. And it could be one of the, you know, not the cause, but one of the causes of, you know, somewhat like the, the recession and everything like that. And I'm wondering, this could be another cause. And are the two related? You know, is this a factor in why people are quitting so much? Is this a factor in, in why, you know, you might see that dampening and, and kind of to the greater point, which is, what happened, like in the past, and this even kind of goes to the paper performance article, Scott, of what happens when organiza like organizations' bottom line is at odds with employees' well-being? And how do, you, how do you square those two things? How do you square an organization's mission with that of their company? So there's lots of places to go here. And I, I think that 
over the past few years, employees have put too much emphasis on the organization to fill all their needs. Not only do you now go to the organization to uh, obviously bring home a paycheck and you know pay for your financial situation, et cetera, but now it's like it has to be your support group. It has to be uh, the way you feel actualized. All these sort of things, which that's too much. You you can't put that on like your uh, your spouse, your partner. You expect the organization to do that, a faceless organization. So a question I have for you guys, you know, on this topic, I'm studying it from the economic standpoint of gosh, we've had this inflation, which puts pressure back on employees because their 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 budgets are squeezed, so they need more money, or they're going to look somewhere else, or you've got the remote work situation. Everything that's everything that's happened over the last couple of years, which there's not a precedent or a trend that you can look at to explain. So I'm curious from a people analytics standpoint. When, when you've tried to help intervene with HR and, and, and give recommendations on whether it's production or retention or any of that, how, how do you factor in those items when there's no historic basis? Oh, man, it's a wild question. Uh, two, two things come to mind. So we're, we're faced with rapid changing circumstances, right? So the, the data from two years ago is just old now. It looks silly to use at this point. Uh, so it really speaks to the speed of decision-making you'd make rapid decisions. And, uh, second, th there's nothing better than a theory. You need to be grounded in some sort of rationale for your decision. And that, that'll take you a long way. Yeah. I think about, I look at it from a few perspectives, uh, a little while ago, it was probably almost a year ago at this time, I wrote an article about overrated and underrated concepts and people analytics. And if you look through the overrated section, like a theme that runs through it is just the concept of forecasting. Uh, because I think we're just, as a species, really, really horrible at it. If you think of like <laughs> Nassim Taleb's Black Swan, like the pandemic was a Black Swan event. I feel like we've had like seven Black Swan events over the last, you know, three years. And, and then you kind of couple that with, with like, how do you do effective people analytics if you know you're terrible at forecasting? Well, you have to have a really nimble workforce, right? Yes. And so that's why I'm so pro being able to be really operationally efficient in how you do workforce planning rather than just the lofty strategic workforce planning of like, oh, the skills we're going to need five years from now. I was like, how do you even know that? What about the skills you need in the next 90 days? And how can you make yourself really agile in that way? I'm just a dumb guy here. What was a black swan? So a black swan, it kind of comes from the, if you know anything about like philosophy and that kind of stuff, the problem of induction. So the problem of induction is, is like, you know, the turkey, I think Max even mentioned this on one of his podcasts when he came on here, where every day the turkey gets fed by the farmer and they're like, oh, the farmer's like my best friend. And then one day the farmer cuts his head off because it's Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Like that's the problem of induction. You just assume that to tomorrow is going to be like yesterday because yesterday was great. And in a black swan event is when something that's almost unpredictable happens. And so there were, I believe this is from the UK where there's only white swans in the UK, but I think in like India or somewhere like that, there's actually black swans. And so if you like were to look at all the swans, you'd say, oh, all swans are white. And then you come across this aberrant occurrence by traveling to another country and you see a black swan and therefore it's like, oh, this is a really 
crazy thing. I never knew that this could be possible. It is actually somewhat predictable, though. So I, I, I've read the book, uh, agreed with so many of the points in it. It is hard to forecast and so on. Are you guys familiar with The Fourth Turning? No. I've heard of it. I don't think I've read it. All right. So essentially, the, the summary of it is we're made up of four. Each turning is based on four different generations that are roughly 20 years in span. And oh, so is this it, the like strong men make hard times? It's, it's like that. Yeah. That, that, and, that thing. And so it depends on, you know, when you're a kid, a teenager, an adult, what was happening in the world and how that shapes you um, going forward. But essentially, if you think about if, if, if a full turning takes roughly 80 years, so pandemic 2020, right? What was, I'll, I'll see, see how good you are on your feet with some, some math. What was 80 years before the pandemic? 1942. So 1940s. World War II. World War II. What yeah. was so? What's eighty years before World War II? So 1940 minus eighty. Civil War. Civil War. What's a little bit around? So go back American Revolution before that. They're all in this kind of window. So that's where there is some predictability that roughly around that time something really, something really bad is going to happen that then shapes a full generation after. Interesting. Yeah, Super think, interesting. Yeah. I think Ray Dalio in his book, I can't remember what it was called has some kind of thesis like that where it's I'll I'll click a I'll put like a link to his he has a, like this 20 minute video that explains how an economy works it like changed my life um but he talks about that there's like short term cycles medium term cycles and long term cycles and I think his long term cycle was like 80 years so it seems to kind of fit that same thesis Hey Jay what what are some of your favorite resources or things that people can from an economic Oh gosh, yeah. The Wall Street Journal is is you know one of my go tos. So like I'd already checked out the article Cole read. I stay on it because it has a variety of things. I think Pew Research is really that Pew puts out a, a bunch of really great stuff in terms of demographics and a um, lot lot of really good information. Uh, the Economist, obviously, but that's probably too strong of a read for most people. So I don't know that I would <laughs> I would follow it. Or hey, you just follow you follow me on 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 LinkedIn and I'll help uh, summarize some of it for you. Absolutely. Well, let, let's go to something lighter for a second. So as, and this has been a really Texas heavy episode and I apologize to her. I don't apologize actually. Um, but if any Texan is aware of something, and I, I imagine most people from other parts of the country or the world are not aware of a concept called Bucky. So Scott or Jay, since you're both native Texans, do you care to explain what a Bucky's is for our audience? I, I don't think you can explain, Buck. You got to experience it, right? It's uh, a massive gas station, but that is an affront to gas station. It is a Think massive... of the largest gas station you've ever seen and multiply it times 10. Then that's just one component. <laughs> yes. Uh, massive store. So they sell their own goods. They sell drinks. They got an own sandwich shop, barbecue joint a whole clothing area you can get you a yeti cooler there if you want Just... yeah i would say i was uh scott i was my i still have family north of north of dallas and between here and there they put a bucky's in over the last several years so you know heading back to during christmas time uh, you don't have to have christmas presents yet you can just stop at bucky's on the oh, way yeah. 
and you can get something from your your grandmother, your niece, like <laughs> everyone is taken care of. You can get a, a deer stand or yeah, or a baby bottle, like whatever you want. The Bucky's got it and it's actually pretty cool stuff. So, People uh, dress their kids in all Bucky's apparel. It is so, a sight to behold. I, I do own a couple Bucky's t-shirts. I, I will admit this. <laughs> but uh, I'll be obtuse. Cole, why are you bringing this up? Well, because, and I, I think this is true, I believe the first Bucky's outside of the state of Texas is being built in Ruston, Louisiana, which is the home of Louisiana Tech University, Scott and I's alma mater. And I'm pretty excited about it. And the city of Ruston is too. So I wanted to give them a shout out that Bucky's is coming to Louisiana. It's going to, I guess, export Texas culture and gas station culture to other places. But uh, it's a pretty big deal. So I have a couple of questions for you guys. Okay. Uh, let's start off with one. I want to hear favorite. You're, you're going into a Bucky's. You can only buy one item. What's your going to be go to? Of, what's your favorite thing to buy at a Bucky's? Oh, I'll let Cole go. What are those nuts called? Are they oh, like be- cheese nuts be- or something? Beaver, beaver nuts. nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I've had those once. They were pretty bomb. I liked them. Otherwise, I'm going to get like a Diet Coke or something, but I'm pretty boring. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Uh, I, I typically don't purchase food items there, but I've had their barbecue sandwich solid. I've had their uh, uh, boudin pretty, pretty dang good, but I'm generally a. Uh, just get a large soda there. Uh, my, my two stops are Temple, Texas, and uh, Terrell, Texas. Terrell, the, sure. the, the, rest, the restrooms are super clean. That, that's what brings the ladies in. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the, the restroom part, for sure. By the way, both of you guys, we just made a big deal about this awesome gas station. You said your go-to is a, is a soda. So just you need to <laughs> consider that. Yeah, I would say my, if I broke it down into three, it, they've got so many varieties of barbecue sauce and salsa and hot oh, sauce. Yeah. Like I can just stand and admire that and actually not even buy any of them, but just see all the different varieties. Um, the, when you, when you first walk in, they have like the sugared pecans and the cashews and stuff. My daughter oh, yeah. and I, we usually split one of those, but honestly it's the whole clothing section and all the, if you go to any time, if you can go between October and the end of the year, all the different holiday stuff. Like I was just cleaning out my garage and there was some bag and I opened it up and it was a pair of like Bucky's Christmas socks. I was so excited about <laughs> that. I've for, I forgotten that I, I, I purchased. So my, my, all right. Second question that I have for you. Um, and this relates, it, it, you know, as we see, this about is it. why we invited you on Jay. Yeah. Cause we knew that you would love the Bucky's talk. <laughs> you know, going all in on Bucky's talk. So we talked earlier in the segment about, you know, my, my firm, we, we focus on compensation recommendations, you know, what, what to offer in today's market and so on. Around two months ago, and this was way before uh, I knew this would be a segment. Around two months ago, somebody sent me an image, and it has a variety of roles at Bucky's and what the going offer rate is. So I'm going to see how close you can get to guessing on a few of these. How about that? Wait, wait. So, so I like, think I've t- actually seen this, so this may not be fair, but keep going. So, so we're talking like a cashier. How much are they paid? Uh, store manager, this sort of thing? Exactly. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, there's one or two that I'm going to be curious because uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised. I was I was happy for some of the rates I saw out there. All right. So you mentioned Scott. You just mentioned cashier. So uh, cashier, grocery stocker on a per hour basis. And I'm not sure which Bucky's this is, uh, but where would you where would you expect that per hour? Any guesses on that? A per hour for a grocery stocker. I I, I believe that uh, Bucky's takes care of their employees. And perhaps pays a bit more than uh, 
you would expect. So I'm going to go 12.95 an hour. Okay. I'm going 16. I, they're very much taking the Costco type of approach of really paying and treating their workers well. I think it's 16. Yeah, yeah, Scott, you're at a disadvantage. He he has seen this. It is exactly 16. And to your point of taking care, so on this same, it's like a billboard, and you, you people can go out and search this if they want. 401k, 100% match up to 6%. Like they have all sorts of great benefits on there as well. Okay. Damn, really? To, 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 yeah. Uh, let's jump ahead a few notches. Car wash manager. You're managing, they have a whole car wash scene going on. You're the manager of that kind of business unit. This is on a salary basis, by the way. So full year salary. So, so once again, we're talking about a gas station that has all this stuff. They have a car wash too. So just based on this position. Uh, man, don't car wash manager. Um, $16 for a cashier. I'm going to go $21, $21 okay. an hour. And so an, annualized basis. Oh, oh annual. Yeah. Well, far, far more than $21 then. Uh, we will go 45,000. Okay. Oh, cool. they have multiple positions that are a hundred K plus salary. So I imagine this is one of them. Because like that's actually why the city of Ruston is so excited because this is like a major employer. I'm looking forward to using the bathrooms when I'm on the way back to Louisiana. <laughs> but is it true? Is it over 100k? 125 plus. Oh my god! Isn't that yeah? So anyway, it's it's great to see, and and that's why it's such a tremendous. And that these probably aren't the same rates, you know, there. But from what I see, I mean, very attractive, very attractive pay, and so on. Uh, seems like they're taking care of their employees. And two, I think I read in the article, go like 200 jobs. I had no idea it took. 200 jobs to power you know that that type of store all right we're gonna have to quit giving bucky so much free publicity because they are not paying us <laughs> they're not they're not paying us but it, it yeah. is a it is a cultural magnet unfortunately it is not the first one outside of texas they do have some in atlanta pardon me alabama and georgia oh, okay but but it, it is a cultural magnet like you you go to bucky's and it's perfectly acceptable to park your car at the pump and just go inside and rummage around. It's not a place. It's a lifestyle. It really um, is. You know, well, I think we've kind of exhausted <laughs> some of our topics <laughs> for the day. Jay, it's been really great talking to you. Uh, Scott, any final words before we hand it over to Jay? Jay, uh, pleasure to meet you. Uh, can't wait to talk to you again. We'll, we'll kick some more uh, college football around next year. Yeah, it sounds great, guys. Like I've said, Love listening to the podcast. Uh, sincerely appreciate being on today. Well, Jay, it was so great having you. And you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott and our guest, Jay Denton. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, guys. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.